Well, thank you so much to the, the music team. Um, it's been, been such an encouraging time for my heart um, th- this morning. Um, I said it during the first service, but I'll, but I'll just mention it again. For me, it is, is absolutely a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, it's a great privilege to, to open the Word this morning. In addition, it's been, it's been a joy to get to know some of the other missionaries. I think that's one of the, one of the things I love about, about coming back to the States and connecting with, with maybe some people I've met before and, and some, some new faces to know that um, what we're trying to do in Italy is a small part of a, of a much larger thing that the Lord is doing. Um, and so it's sweet to, to fellowship around not just what the Lord's doing in, 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 in here in Lynchburg or, or, or only in Italy, but, but in so many different places. So um, I'm just really grateful to be here. Thank you to, to, to Brian, to Jeff, for this opportunity um, to open up the Word with you. And this morning, I want to ask you to open up to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And, and while you're making your way to Mark chapter 4, there's two things that you should know this morning. The first thing, and this is not going to be shocking in the slightest, um, I'm going to be preaching to you on this, this morning on evangelism. I know, big soccer, right? The missionary is now going to preach on evangelism. It is extremely stereotypical. But I mention this because it's important from the outset that um, you are ready to hear a sermon on evangelism. Now, whatever that means for you, um, sometimes when you hear a sermon on evangelism, here's, what's hap- here's, here's what happens. Um, you feel really guilty until um, about... Um, two o'clock Sunday afternoon, and then you go about your business Monday and nothing changes. And that sort of guilt, which may result in self-pity, is, is not real change. So my, my encouragement to you from the beginning this morning would be, as you hear this very, very stereotypical sermon on evangelism, that you ready your heart for real change. And the second thing, and this is going to be really scary, but this sermon is actually three sermons combined into one. And I know what you're thinking. That sounds very long. Um, it's not going to be that long, but, but this is going to be a three-for-one deal. We're going to cover a lot of ground together. Um, I said two things. Maybe there's one other thing that you need to know. You're probably going to be asking yourself, well, when is this guy going to read the text? Um, good question. I will read each section as we make our way through because if you're opened up to Mark chapter 4, we want to, we want to study from verse 21 all the way to verse number 32. But, but to get there, there's some things that we have to say. You can just keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4. Now, we, we've heard it all before. The parable of the soils. And if you're looking at verse number 3, you'll notice that the parable begins this way. Behold, the sower went out to sow. Now, you know the story. There's this four soils which represent the hearts of four types of hearers who respond to the word in four different ways. What we see as much in verse number 14. All four hear the word, and yet only the fourth soil, that is the good soil, that is those whose hearts are softened by God's grace, they truly embrace it. The others know, but the fourth soil, yes. If if you've accepted the word, if you have this morning repented from your rebellion and embraced King Jesus who gave his life for his people, you are by God's grace the good soil. You have to understand that the difference between the good soil and the other soils is not superficial. It's a question of of fruitfulness. In verse 19, we we read that the growth in the third thorny soil is unfruitful. Verse number 7 says it yielded no crop. But, But we find in verse 20, the good soil bears fruit. That is to say, it yields a harvest. 
It's rather simple. If you are indeed the good soil, you must bear fruit. But, but, but it begs a question. What is the nature of the fruit that the good soil must bear? And by the way, I think this is rather obvious, um, but, but this is an important question. Because if you are indeed this morning the good soil, you should be wanting to ask yourself, what kind of fruit should there be in my life? And I'm assuming that even your presence here this morning means that you long to bear fruit and that you disdain the idea of wasting your life on selfish pursuits. The fruit about which Jesus is talking in verse number 20 is kingdom fruit. Fruit in the kingdom of God. You have to understand that the parable of the soils, along with the rest of the parables in Mark chapter 4, describe life in the kingdom of God in the present age. You can see this, for example, in verse 26 and also in verse 30. So so this is why before explaining the parable of the soils to his disciples, Jesus says in verse number 11, and you can look there, to you has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, now bear with me for a minute. The the mystery of the kingdom of God is that, in, in the same way that there are two comings of Christ, the kingdom of God unfolds in two phases. This is how Mark summarizes it, summarizes it in Jesus' preaching at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, Mark 1 and 15, just listen. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, in the future, men will be constrained to bend the knee before the king and to acknowledge the glory of his kingdom. But... In the present age, Christ reigns in the hearts of those who accept his word. The kingdom of God is Christ's dominion over those whom he has saved. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. Again, you can just listen. Colossians 1.13. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. All of this means that the fruit that we must bear has to do with the present phase of the kingdom of God. The rule of King Jesus spreads by the preaching of his gospel. And this is why in the gospel of Matthew we find phrases like the word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom. We we might say it this way, that the good soil becomes the sower. Every good soil that accepts the word of the kingdom becomes a sower of that same word. So again, if you are the good soil... You therefore need to ask yourself, what fruit should I bear? And and part of the fruit, the center of this fruit, is that each soil becomes in turn a sower of that same word. Our our good fruit, our being good soil, has to do with our faithfulness to share that which we've heard. We, We receive to give. To follow Christ always means longing to see others do the same. Now, it goes without saying that that, that Jesus himself is the master disciple maker. And the disciples that Jesus makes are always those who long to make other disciples. They they bear fruit. Jesus, towards the beginning of Mark's gospel, tells his disciples, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And, And I think that you probably remember these verses, but we often forget that he doesn't say, I will... Make you, he says, I will make you become. And that word become is often forgotten, but it's important. 
Because it's a process. We follow Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself makes us become that which we are not in and of ourselves. Now, I believe you studied the Gospel of Mark recently, and so you'll know this well. This Gospel is strewn with examples of the spiritual thick-headedness and the faithless hard-heartedness of the disciples. They get it wrong, and they get it wrong a lot. But in contrast to their confusion, we we find Jesus. We we, we find Jesus, a careful, patient, kind-hearted discipler. He, He brings them along lovingly. And he carefully molds a band of uneducated fishermen into fishers of men. And he creates this group who before could do nothing but think of themselves... And he molds them into a group of those who long to see souls saved and submitted to King Jesus. And if we are likewise followers of Christ, if we're like the disciples, he's doing the very same thing in our hearts. He's making us become that which we could never be apart from his help. Fishers of men. He's making us become those who bear kingdom fruit. And one of the ways that he does this is by giving us truths about the kingdom to preach to our hearts. All of the other parables in Mark chapter 4 unpack just what it means to bear fruit in the kingdom. Here's how we're going to study this together this morning. I want you to see in these verses three kingdom truths that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. Three kingdom truths that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. We're going to see the first one in verses 21 through 25. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. It's the first kingdom truth. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. Look at verse number 21. I told you we were going to read and finally we are. Verse verse 21. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it, or or under a bed? Is is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. The the word that you hear is not for your ears only. The the message that you've heard must then be spoken so that others might hear. The the word that fills your hearts must overflow into your relationships with others and shape your every interaction with them. If, If we are ever to bear kingdom fruit... We must take what we've received and pass it along to other people. The the, the emphasis in in this parable is a bit different, or the emphasis in this section is a bit different than the emphasis in the parable of the soils. The emphasis in the parable of the soils was on how we hear the word. Here the emphasis is on what we do with what we hear. And we see this, for example, in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then in verse 24, take care what you listen to. 
There's a lot that's happening here, but we need to understand that there's two strands of the argument. Here's the first strand, verses 21 and 23. Jesus explains that just as a lamp is made for shining, revelation is given for sharing. Just as a lamp is made for shining, revelation is given for sharing. There's a second strand, verses 24 and 25. Every hearer of the word has a responsibility based on what he has heard. When we hear the word, we have a responsibility. Let's unpack this a little bit. Look at verse 21. A lamp, simply put, is for shining, and therefore it isn't fit to be concealed under a basket or under a bed. Its proper place clearly is on the lampstand, because its purpose is to give light. Now, if you're looking at verses 21 and 22, you're going to see that the emphasis is clearly on purpose. We see three times that little phrase, to be. One time we see that it would. We're all, all of these phrases are talking about purpose. Now, a lamp's purpose why it was made, means that it is absurd to conceal it or to cover it. Now, it's true that parables were meant to conceal revelation from a hardened people during Jesus' earthly ministry. We see that in verses 11 and 12. But the ultimate purpose of revelation, that is the word of God, is just that, to reveal, to give light the light of the word of the kingdom must shine forth like the lamp on the lampstand. And as the parallel passage of the Gospel of Luke says, so that those who come in may see the light. Now, now the rest of the section, you can look down at verse number 23, highlights the nature of our responsibility. In verse 24, we see that the way we respond to the word that is, by what measure we measure what we hear, is connected to what we will receive. That is, how it will be measured to us. When we're faithful with what we hear, God graciously gives us more opportunities to hear the word. Hearing the word well begets more occasions to hear the word again. And then we, we find ourselves in verse 25, and, and here the warning is meant to remind us that it's our responsibility to the word that determines our relationship to the kingdom. If I want to know wh where I am with the kingdom in the present age, I have to ask myself what I do with the word of God. Let's put this section together. We said that there was two strands. It's our responsibility to be faithful to the purpose of revelation. So, so I have to respond to the revelation, to the revelation I receive in light of its purpose. This means that we listen well when we listen in order to tell others. We have a responsibility to share. You may have heard of the Gnostic Gospels. Maybe you've heard them called the Apocryphal Gospels. These are false Gospels which were written a good while after the Biblical Gospels. There is, for example, the Gospel of Judas. And in this false Gospel... Judas is the hero. He's the one who's worthy to have special knowledge of Jesus. Judas gets it. The other disciples don't get it. Here's how Gnostic Gospels work. According to the Gnostic Gospels, salvation is to possess a secret, hidden knowledge, a gnosis. And this special knowledge, it's not for everybody. It's reserved to the select. It's reserved for the select few. Those who show themselves to be worthy 
the initiated, the elite. This so-called gospel in the Gnostic Gospels is to be concealed and not shared. Friends, we, we must never be Gnostic in our understanding of the message of the kingdom. We receive to give. And we dare not treat the revelation of God as if it was our personal property to protect from other people. So so God has said, if you're a believer this morning, God has said, let there be light. And there was light in your heart. And you have to long for other people to experience the very same thing. Now, 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 if you're thinking, well, this this guy's a missionary. Easy for him to say, right? I mean... Surely for him, evangelism is always easy. You're wrong. You're wrong. I wish it was like that, but it's, but it's not. Evangelism is, isn't easy, and that, that certainly goes for me. But, but what we need to do this morning, if we ever hope to serve the Lord, to honor him in this way, is to feel the weight of our responsibility. There, there's some important questions that we have to ask ourselves in light of this text. How can we hoard the riches of the gospel when our neighbors know not that the king has come? You're a privileged people. You sit under your pastor's faithful preaching week in and week out. But will you feast on verse-by-verse exposition without ever opening your heart to those who starve and have never known true spiritual nourishment? Can we shut the light up in our own homes, drawing the curtain so that none may see in, but while those around us languish in spiritual darkness? Are we guilty of just assuming that because it seems that most people call themselves Christians that they're okay? Are we guilty of surrounding ourselves only with other Christians who think exactly like us, Are we guilty of only spending time with those who are like-minded when there is a whole world full of people who are made in God's image and yet do not know the God who made them? The kingdom of God has been brought near in Christ. And in Christ, we're brought near to God. But this nearness to God doesn't end there because our nearness to God should likewise draw us near to others. It should give us a burden for others. So we have to fight against this sort of depersonalized existence. We can't allow ourselves to be barred from human interaction because we bury our faces in the little glowing screens that we carry about in our pockets. We have to be willing to risk our own comfort for the sake of the gospel. We have to be ready to embrace discomfort to get the message out. Jesus himself is is the ultimate sower. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2, we we find, blinded by the emptiness of their own religious formalism, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they they just can't seem to understand why Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' friendship with sinners is a perpetual problem. And we read phrases like, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Could could others say the same about us? Or, could could they only say 
That man there is a Christian and attends church, and he only talks to other Christians and others who are just like him. Or, or, or could they say, that that's a guy, even though he's committed to his faith and he's not ready to compromise, but he wants to be around people who are different and think differently so that he can point them to Jesus Christ. So we, so we have to ask, how are we intertwining our lives with our unbelieving friends and family so that we might speak to them about Christ? How are we deliberately working to tell them of what we've heard? The, the equation is, 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 is rather straightforward. The sower can't sow seed if he doesn't go out into the field. We can't bring the truth to bear on those whom we don't know. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. There's a, there's a second kingdom truth that we need to see, and this is the second kingdom truth that will fertilize our hearts to bear kingdom fruit. And it's that the growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. Look at verse number 26. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The growth of the kingdom is not ultimately dependent on our own efforts or our own ingenuity. Yes, the Lord is pleased to use us as channels for the glory of his gospel. But he always works in spite of us. Even when the Lord works through us, he always works at the same time in spite of us. But the good news is that our frailty can't put the brakes on the expansion of the gospel. Because it's... Because it's Growth, its progress, isn't contingent upon our capacity. We ourselves are never the direct cause of spiritual growth. Kingdom growth is always and every time supernatural. In verse 26, you can look there. We encounter a rather indistinct character. He's not even necessarily a farmer, he's just a man. And the link between this parable... And the parable of the soils is unmistakable. The seed he sows is the word, and the soil represents the hearts of those who hear. After flinging his seed upon the soil, verse 26, we read in verse 27 that he goes about his normal routine. He goes to sleep, wakes up the next day. There's this cyclical fashion to it all. And meanwhile... There's something happening out in the field. He slumbers. He's there going about his normal, brushing his teeth, going to sleep, waking up, making the coffee, whatever he does. And meanwhile, he's doing the ordinary. Something is happening out in the field. And it's unmistakable. You can't miss this. His efforts cannot account for the growth of the seed. He himself cannot be the source of the fruit. He's sleeping and it's growing. And then what's more, if you look at verse number 27, 
he doesn't even have the wherewithal to explain how it all happens. There's that interesting phrase, how he himself does not know. This man, this, this farmer, is ignorant of the natural mechanisms that cause the seed to sprout. He can sow the seed, but he can't really make the seed do anything. He can't guarantee a good harvest. The growth of the kingdom is mysterious. The seed that we scatter often takes root when we least expect it. Those who seem ready to soften to the gospel, they harden. And those who seem to have the most impenetrable, hard hearts, they soften. Some come to Christ having heard the message of the gospel one time for five minutes. Others are converted after hearing the word weekly for 50 years. And I hope that as you're hearing this, there are, there, there are faces and people that come into your mind. Friends and family members. And, and if you're like me, you, you are prone to think, but, but, but I've tried. And we, 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 we've talked and I've tried to ask questions. And I've tried to give them resources. And I've pleaded and I've begged and I've, and I've prayed. But, but it seems like nothing is happening. Look not to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Because what you have to understand is that what you see with your human eyes is a meager fraction of what the Lord is doing. It's a mere portion of the power that operates in the Word of God. The Word's power to build the kingdom is not contingent upon or dependent upon our ability to understand exactly how it works or what is happening. And and, and there's a danger here. Because when we evaluate the progress of the gospel only based on what we perceive to be happening, that is, according to our human perspective, as if it was limited by our limitations, doubts begin to creep in. And we begin to question the potency of the word of Christ. This is precisely what happens a little bit further along in chapter 4. After this this section that we read, we find Jesus on on a boat. Jesus has faithfully preached the word, just, just like the man in our parable. And what does he do? He sleeps soundly. But, but the disciples are gripped by what they see on the boat. They're, they're gripped by what they see and forgetful of who they are with. And so if you're looking at verse number 38, they call Christ's character into question. They wake him and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They forgot the power of the word. They've forgotten the sermon that they've just heard. And since they're doubting what the word can do i.e. Christ's power, they call his character into question. Forget not the power of the word of Christ. Do you understand that every time a soul is exposed to God's word, there is the greatest hope of transformation? Because the power is in the seed itself. Look at verse 28. The soil produces crops by itself. But by itself translates the word automatas, where we get words like automatic. It pops up 
for example, in a rather simple, rather banal use, Acts 12.10, it's used of a door. It's a door that opens by itself. It describes an action accomplished without outside intervention. The, the, The Word of God, insofar as it contains an intrinsic creative force, can cause the growth of the kingdom by itself. That is to say, its efficacy is not contingent upon us. It's inherently powerful to create life in dead hearts. The the, the power source behind every part of the growth is ever the same. So he he describes it in in verse verse 28. First the blade, then the head, the mature grain. It's all from the word. And then verse 29 tells us that there will be a harvest and will be the exact harvest that God wants when God wants. We're simply the privileged instruments that God uses to unleash the power of his word. Our job is to be faithful to understand it, be faithful to explain it, to add nothing to it, to take nothing from it, because every subtraction and every addition can only diminish its power. This is the glorious liberty of life in the kingdom. We throw ourselves into the spread of the gospel, knowing that its spread does not depend upon us. All fruit is God's fruit. Now, if if it were the case that the growth of the kingdom depended upon us, if the growth of the kingdom were, in fact, contingent upon our gifting or, or our wisdom or our knowing exactly what to say and when to say it, we might be able to say that our excuses for inactivity are justified. But the growth of the kingdom does not depend upon you. So you have to understand this, that the word of God can save Even when we stutter, the word of the God is powerful even when we stammer, even when we're unsure how to share the gospel, even when our speech is shaky. That the word of the God can overcome our nervousness. The word of God can overcome our embarrassment. The word of God can overcome our lack of sophistication. The word of God can overcome our awkwardness. We must ever keep our eyes peeled for unbelievers that we can befriend. And we have to beseech the Lord to give us wisdom to know how best to lovingly weave the truth of his word into our conversations with them. Yes, we have to ever be careful to keep ourselves separated from the world. We should never entangle ourselves in the sins of our unbelieving friends and call it evangelism. We can't condone a lifestyle that doesn't honor Christ. We have to be holy. And yet... We should be able to to share life with our unbelieving friends and family. We should bear their burdens. We should love them as Christ has loved us. We have to do everything in our power possible to sow seed into every heart. Here's the formula. Sow, sleep, and see what the Lord does. Sow, sleep, and see what the Lord does. The, The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. There's a third kingdom truth that will fertilize your heart to bear kingdom fruit. And we'll see it beginning in verse 30. The best of the kingdom is yet to come. The best of the kingdom is yet to come. Verse number 30. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It's like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, 
though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so as far as they were able to hear, and did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Presently, the kingdom of God is characterized by smallness, by, by humility, and by ordinary, everyday sinners saved by grace. The ultimate glory of the kingdom is veiled in the present age. M many haven't heard that the king has come. And many who have heard scoff at his kingdom. But a day is coming when the king will return. And his glory will be seen by all as he establishes his reign. And this means that the best of the kingdom is yet to come. Now, as I mentioned when I introduced our text this morning, the kingdom of God unfolds in two phases. In the present age, Christ reigns in the hearts of his people by the Spirit as they submit to his word. In the age to come, all men will bow before the king and see the magnificence of his kingdom. The kingdom, we might say, was inaugurated at Christ's first coming, but will be consummated when he returns again in glory. Verses 26 through 29, that is the last section that we studied, emphasize the process of the growth of the kingdom of God, one soul at a time. The parable of the mustard seed, on the other hand, emphasizes the contrast between the beginning and the end. The contrast between the first phase and the second phase. Now, it's true that there's, there's an organic link between these two phases, but, but, but the idea of the text is that the end is surprising. The end is shocking in light of the beginning. Verse 31, you can look there. A mustard seed is a fitting illustration for the initial phase of the kingdom because it's minuscule. A mustard seed has a diameter of one or two millimeters. There's a smallness or a simplicity about the way that the kingdom currently grows. Jesus wants to emphasize the minuteness of the seed. It was then considered the smallest seed, this tinier than all the seeds then known. The Lord does not work through political clout. The Lord does not work through earthly power. The Lord doesn't need our clever programs to build his kingdom. In this age, it is the folly of the preached word that saves and sanctifies. And our Lord is pleased to work through what seem to us to be insignificant means. Or, or, or things that seem unimpressive or insignificant by worldly standards. Now, if we were to ask ourselves, why does God choose to work this way? Why does he use smallness and weakness to grow his kingdom? We need only look at God the Son. I mean, th think about this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit dwell together, three persons, one God, eternally joyful in their own nature. And then God the Father sins God the Son, and God the Son comes to earth, and he does not arrive as, as a king. He is a king, but he's not seen to be a king. And he lives a humble life. Think about his earthly ministry. He's born in the manger. He's without a place to lay his head. 
He's an unknown carpenter from a backwater town called Nazareth. He, he ate with sinners. His companions were commoners. His twelve disciples certainly were not of noble blood. And even the twelve, the ones closest to him, abandoned him in the end. Jesus gives life by dying. Jesus heals our brokenness by suffering. Jesus will say in that, that key verse in this gospel, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He did not come in his humility to be treated like a worldly or an earthly king, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, now you've probably heard of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. They, they were posted at the end of October 1517. But just a few months later, he presented another set of lesser-known theses at the dispute of Heidelberg in April 1518. It was there that Martin Luther introduced the concept that is essential to understanding his thought. He talked about the distinction between the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. Here's what he means. For, for Luther, the theologian of glory refuses to acknowledge his own tendency to trust in himself. The theologian of glory thinks that God acts in this world exactly as he might. The theologian of glory imagines that God builds his, builds his kingdom in human fashion. He thinks that God shows his greatness and his grandeur just like any other human monarch might. The, the theologian of the cross, on the other hand, knows that Christ's cross work is the pinnacle of God's working in this world to get himself glory, and so, and so sees everything through a cross-shaped lens. What one historian applying Luther's concept of the theologian of the cross helps us here. He says this quote, So when a Christian talks about divine power, or even about church or Christian power, it is to be conceived in terms of the cross, Power hidden in the form of weakness. In this age, the kingdom is not like an army that marches forward, dominating all that's in its path. The kingdom is like a farmer who sows seed. The kingdom in this age expands through the efforts of imperfect, weak, saved sinners who make up the church. In this age, there's suffering. In this age, there's sadness. There's persecution. There's cross-bearing. Friends, don't be confused about the way that God is working in the present age. Glory and grandeur and greatness, they're yet to come. Don't be fooled into thinking that the Lord has need of that which is outwardly impressive or that he should build his kingdom as you would. I have good news for you this morning. If you're sitting here and you consider yourself to be an average, run-of-the-mill, normal, ordinary believer who loves Jesus Christ, you are exactly the sort of person our Lord is pleased to use. He uses your ordinariness, your so-called normal life of submission to his word to bring about change in the lives of other people. He, he uses our weakness, our smallness, our limitations to reach other weak human beings. And in so doing, he gets all the glory for every bit of progress that is made. 
Verse 32 tells us, though, that it won't ever and always be this way. We talked about this contrast because here, the smallness of the seed gives way to a robust tree that offers birds a refuge. And the end is shockingly unexpected in light of the beginning. There's a seeming tininess of the seed, the, the, the minuteness of the beginning is swallowed up in the splendor of the culmination. The Son of Man will come again in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And when Christ returns, then His kingdom will be fully and finally manifested. But you can't miss something here. You can't miss this Old Testament reference. But because here in verse 32, when Jesus is talking about birds of the sky nesting in the branches of the tree, he has passages in mind like Daniel 4.12, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31. And these passages are important because they help us grasp that the birds represent the, the nations. The birds represent the nations. The kingdom of God, which seems small now, seems as if at times it's limping along. The seed that we sow, we ask ourselves, well, is, is, is it really doing anything? Can, can it really be this simple? This kingdom, which, which seems from our earthly perspective, maybe to be, to be stopped or stagnant or stymied, will in the end, will in the end be made up of some from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. Do you know where this is headed? Because in the end, the kingdom that seems small now will be filled with those who are saved by the blood of the Son. And the nations will walk by the light of the Lamb. And then they'll bring their glory into New Jerusalem forever and ever. And at that point, there will be no naysayers. There will be no scoffers. There will not be those who say, I don't know if I really want to follow this king because he will be king and all will acknowledge who he is. The best is yet to come. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is only seen in part now because His power shines forth in the life of His imperfect people. But then, it will be fully seen in the light of His personal presence. Then, our efforts, which at times seem to be done in vain, will be seen for what they really were. Then and only then, will the real nature of the fruit yielded by our ministry be seen. Charles Bridges has well said this, quote, Ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may lie under the earth till we lie there and then spring up. If we are ever to bear maximum fruit, we have to preach these truths to our hearts. The word of the kingdom is not for your ears only. The growth of the kingdom is not limited by your limitations. And the best of the kingdom is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. I thank you for the way that reveals our, our inadequacy and, and yet doesn't leave us there. 
it shows us the, the great hope of, of the inner workings of what you're doing in the present age. And as I look out at my, my, my brothers and sisters this morning, I, I pray that their hearts would be filled with conviction, not, not, not the sort of conviction that, that, that results and produces only self-pity. I pray that their hearts would be filled with a longing to see Christ named among the nations. Father, I pray, even, even today, that, that this coming week, that you would put people in our path that we had not otherwise um, planned for or, or expected, and that you would ready us so that we might share the gospel. We, we, we want to show people, we want to point people to that which we've been given. Lord, Lord, make us faithful. We believe, but help our unbelief. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.